Welcome to episode 33 of Tall Poppy. I'm your host, Tathra Street. This podcast is about changing the face of leadership by highlighting the voices of a new paradigm of leadership. My guest today fits beautifully into that. Michelle Redfern is all about advancing women. And in this episode, we talk about feminism, football, financial literacy, and leadership. Michelle describes herself as a commercial pragmatist, a socialist capitalist, and her vision is about creating a gender-equal world. How does this fit into business and community leadership? Well, a really good example is the recent historic first of a professional women's football league in Australia. In many ways, this is the perfect place to inspire fundamental change in Australian society. For years, girls and women were excluded from local football clubs as players, and it was just the way it was. Today, women are paid to play. Sure, it's a fraction of what the men are paid, but it's a start. Michelle describes her own experience of having a sense of belonging and a feeling of being included at a football game. She came from the corporate sector, where she only had male leaders at work. And she was often the only woman at the table. And after years of what she calls micro-disappointments and micro-exclusions, she now has a solid vision for creating a gender-equal world, backed up by research and a strategy that includes things like self-awareness, purpose, financial literacy, and equipping women for leadership to make her vision a practical reality. A couple of things to note. This was recorded in May before the French election. And for those outside Australia, super, as Michelle refers to, is a structured retirement fund paid into by employers. So it's like a mandated RRSP or registered retirement savings plan that's embedded in your pay. And it's only been around in Australia for about 30 years. So not everyone, especially women who stopped work to have children, um, have enough to retire comfortably with. Here's my interview with Michelle Redfern. I'd like to welcome Michelle Redfern to Tall Poppy. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with, um, even though we're doing an in-person interview, uh, would you like to share with the audience uh, where in the world we are? Well, where in the world we are is in Advancing Women HQ, uh, which is code for my office. I live and work in the city, in the Melbourne CBD, yay me, uh, and I'm fortunate enough to run my Advancing Women practice from my home office, which is the whole ground floor of my townhouse. So I'm sitting here, or we're sitting here, surrounded by basically the leftovers from a couple of workshops this week. So we've got poster boards and we've got pictures of cats and and we've got material everywhere and my various devices hanging around but uh, and, and a busy little thoroughfare or laneway outside because we're in the CBD of course so it's 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 bustling and busy and warm and cozy. Excellent and yeah it's, it is definitely nice and warm and cozy although spacious given it's getting quite cold in Melbourne at the moment. So let's start with a little bit about uh, tell me about your work and um, what's important to you about what you do. Yeah, cool. So my work is advancing women and it's a really simple and and I suppose could be seen as a a little bit trite, but advancing women in business and sport is the name of my business. What I do is is quite simply advance women. So my purpose is to create a gender equal world. So the work that I do, I I, I say I work with women, I only work with women or the companies that employ women. So that's pretty much everyone. Uh, And my philosophy is to create or give women, individual women and groups of women, the tools 
tools uh, and the practical the practical tools and the resources and the access to connections that can help them advance. And when I talk about advance, it's advance in career, in their business, in life, and then with companies uh, and, and advance on their own terms because I, I don't want women to be fixed. Uh, that's that's the, a really strong, strong philosophy of mine. I, we don't need to be fixed. The system needs to be fixed and adjusted so that women can thrive and flourish and contribute and, and seriously make world, the world and business a better place. Can you say a little bit more about why you chose to focus on working with women? Because I'm a woman <laughs> and I've had 30 plus years in the workforce and in that time I've observed a lot of things. The The prevailing memory I have, because I came to management and leadership quite young in life, is that I was often the only woman at the table or one of few women at the table uh, from a leadership perspective. And, you know, when I started out in, in my 20s, which was... 30 years ago, I thought, you know, this this will change. And I've been a feminist all my life. And I thought this will change. And it has not. So I now have a 23-year-old daughter who's going to essentially uh, encounter the same considerations, trade-offs and barriers that I did 30 years ago. So I want to talk about the word feminism for a sec, because it seems as though it's become a dirty word and people are afraid to use it. And, um, you know, I mean, it's the connotation rather than the word itself, because the word is very much just about equality. So um, what's been your experience around that? I recently reclaimed feminism. Uh, I've always been a, a, I think I was a closet feminist. I, I don't think the people who knew me really well ever doubted that I was a feminist and always around advancing women in, in some way, shape or form or another. But I've reclaimed feminism and call myself a feminist openly. And I've only done that for the last few years. Why? Because it always starts a conversation. And when you start a conversation, you can help build awareness. And, and by the same token, I can gain awareness of other people's perspectives and views. Feminism is about equality of the sexes. There's there's no mystery about the definition. But what I want to debunk or the myths I want to debunk is um, I'm not a man-hater. How could I be? I have a father. I have a son. Uh, I have two brothers-in-law that that I adore. I have nephews. I couldn't possibly hate men. So I'm not a man-hating feminist, but I am a, a woman who wants to be treated equally. I'm a woman who wants my daughter and my nieces, my sisters, my mother and other women in the world to be treated equally. So I claim feminism and I am a feminist. Awesome. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to hear about your experiences in corporate world, in the working world, in, you know, as a, a young leader. I experienced similar stuff in just anticipating things will get better. And, uh, and then I moved to Australia knowing that it was a you know, reasonably sexist country and really just seeing so much inequality and just how differently women are treated, you know, from every, everything from the jobs we get, how we're treated as politicians, when we stick our neck out, you know, I mean, that's the whole top, tall poppy concept is, is around that. So tell me a little bit about some of the experiences that you have had that have inspired you to really go down this track of, of promoting this kind of equality. Unlike other women, I haven't had that. I have no, I have no tragedy or particular, particularly devastating story to, to share. There was no one event in my catalogue of events. But you know what, my, my great friend and, and business collaborator, Susan Colantuno from the States, uh, she runs, uh, founded and, and runs a company called uh, Leading Women. She has this term which I've really fastened onto. I, I went through a 
decades of micro disappointments and micro exclusions. And I and the way I, I explain that is it's the subtle, you know, we, we talk about casual sexism and it's the subtle exclusion, the subtle, th- 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 those things that, that really, in hindsight, you go, wow, that happened. Uh, now, I've, of course, I would um, call things out and, and what have you. But what I would what I would say is that having spent at least a decade in predominantly uh, male leadership teams, I found myself losing my femininity. I found myself uh, behaving like uh, – knowing that I had to behave like a man, so be tough and be uncompromising and, you know, be loud and, you know, really push myself forward. So I became more aggressive uh, than I wanted to be. And, I, and I'm not sure what the catalyst was for me rethinking that. Uh, and I'd love to – I probably should reflect a little more closely on why the, the, the change again. But I thought, oh, I'm not me anymore. And I'm trying to run with the pack and I'm trying to run with the boys. And I'm, I'm trying to be a boy and I don't want to be a boy. I want to bring who I am and what I am and the richness of my experience and the, the depth of my personality to every table because I reckon that can make a difference. So it, that's a rambly kind of way of, of explaining it. So in a, um, a recent episode with Gus Harvey from Future Crunch, he said that one of the things that businesses can do to in, in terms of facing the future as, as an adaptation that will improve what they're dealing with is to have more women in leadership and that that has actually been demonstrated through research that it increases turnover as generating re- revenue for, for the business. I can't remember the stats, but is, is that kind of the, the, the kind of thing that you're aiming to, to achieve? Absolutely. So there's a, there's, I want uh, individual and groups of women to advance on their own terms. There's no doubt about that. And I want to be part of their, their toolkit to do that. But what I want to do with with companies and organisations is is have them succeed because a thriving economy is good for everyone. To to have the economy thrive, we need more workforce participation and the very natural, easy, and I say easy, but it's not, way to do that is to get more women participating in the workforce, particularly at a leadership level. Greater, just, just greater female participation across the workforce adds trillions to GDP. To have greater numbers of women and women of colour and uh, women who have accessibility considerations and women who are LGBTI at the table brings different perspectives. So you get that cognitive diversity and you, with cognitive diversity, basically you get difference of thought, which means you get debate and you get argument. And that's where great creativity and ideas and innovation, that's where it's sparked and that's how you get ahead. And that's pretty much exactly what Gus was saying as well. And I noticed on your bookshelf that you have um, Patrick Lencioni's book and or one of his books. And I remember seeing that, um, and, and often in the work that I do around leadership, we look at you know trust as the foundation. And then the next level is those robust conversations, the ones that are going to, that aren't all you know about groupthink and, and yes men. It's like, no, here's a different idea. This is a different way of looking at it. I, I want to move a little bit into the, the what your work looks like and what what are some of the ways that people can engage with what you have to offer? 
essentially I've got, so I, I do work one-on-one, a small amount of work one-on-one with women. So I, I, I mentor, I, I mentor and coach and I'm quite distinct between the two because they're quite separate uh, philosophies and methodologies. So I do that. Well, coaching is a series of questions and, and is around uncovering the gold inside the person. And it's not around offering advice and things like that. So it, it, And I use the GROW model, which is a, a really, it's been around for a long time. It's robust. It's, it's stood the test of time. So, but it is about uncovering that potential that's already within the person and being an accountability partner. It, it's a bit the same as why do we go to gyms? Why do we go to uh, weight loss centres and things like that? Accountability. So, because people go, oh, I should be able to do this on my own. Well, that's why you go to a gym. That's why you go to a weight loss centre. That's why That's why you go to a coach for your, your career and for your leadership career. Mentoring is the sharing of my wisdom and my experience and offering to connect. Um, so I'm very, very clear when I'm working with individual women what I'm doing with them. Um, and it is a lot of advisory. The next one is I work with groups of women. So I have a six-module program and it's based on three elements, EQ, IQ and SQ. The EQ is building your emotional quotient or emotional intelligence muscles. Uh, The IQ is building your IQ muscles, but the IQ is around business IQ, business acumen, knowing how to read financial reports, knowing how to set and execute strategy, knowing how to have strategic conversations. And the SQ is a a bit of a play on on social quality because social quotient is is quite a a technical term. But what I'm saying is if you've got EQ and you've got IQ, as a woman, you need to know how to advance yourself. How do you authentically, gracefully self-promote? How do you have the right conversations? When do you have the conversations? Do you have the right, do you have the right, most powerful digital identity? And, And these are practical things like your LinkedIn profile. What events are you going to? What does your strategic networking look like? How are you actively connecting? and things like that because I'm always ground I'm a very just do it practical kind of person and that's what I want to do with my workshops for women is really practical stuff there's a lot of theory there's a lot of research and I'm I'm a curator of that theory and research and I distill it into a way that women can absorb grab and run with um, to advance on their own terms so the formats are day workshops and intensive weekends so I've got uh, advancing by the sea weekends so I uh, the sea is my well, being by the sea is my place where I get a lot of joy, a lot of uh, – I do a lot of reflection, get a lot of inspiration. So I'm, I'm be running uh, workshops in a metropolitan location by the sea and in a regional location by the sea, intensive weekends. That sounds great. There's two things that you mentioned um, and, and one I know that we had a conversation about before and one is um, financial literacy and I'd love to hear your thoughts on the importance of that because I know that's something that's really important to you. Um, and the other one is about – self-promotion and how difficult it can be for women. Financial literacy falls into two buckets and uh, and, and I didn't mention I, I also run events for women uh, through the women, My Women Who Get It um, ecosystem, so I, I forgot to mention that one. Financial literacy has two elements. The one that I teach or um, share information on is business financial literacy, so being able to understand how your business sets strategy, looks at the you – know, you know, <laughs> Do you know what a PL looks like and what it does? Uh, what 
is what is cash flow and what does it really mean? Uh, what does it mean when you make a profit and, and uh, what does equity mean? What does a balance sheet look like? Uh, so that's the the part that I teach. And then I partner with other women, particularly through my Women Who Get It network, to run workshops on financial literacy for women for their own wealth and their own, well, to, to, to plan for, for older age. I'm really concerned that many women are retiring into poverty, uh, women who don't have enough superannuation for a range of reasons and often because of a lack of workforce participation, divorce later in life or they just simply haven't taken control of their own finances. So I'm not a wealth and fun and personal uh, financial planning expert, but I'm connected to women who are. And that's that's my connecting, curating strength, bringing the right experts to the table so that women can get access to saying, this is how I take charge of my life and this is how I can advance and have choices. So there's the, that's the two elements to financial. Yeah, so let's talk about self-promotion because even just hearing you say those words, I notice uh, it's not a physical cringe, but it's like an inner cringe. And I have come a long way in terms of my ability to promote myself. Um, One of the things I personally struggle with is that as the world changes so quickly, I feel like my response to it changes and my offerings change. And so I I struggle to kind of, you know, find a consistent thing that is the thing that I do because it seems to always be changing. But but, um, what are some of the experiences that you've had around your own self-promotion and the, the women that you've worked with and the struggle that we have? Have around self-promotion. Well, you've captured it perfectly with the um, with the inner cringe, because many many women, myself included, have had the feedback during you know, in, in the corporate setting or from a business coach or wherever it may be. You've got to get yourself out there. You've got to increase your profile. You've got to build a brand, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's great. So I think I don't think there's any shortage of uh, advice about what to do. It's the how to do it. And I use authenticity as the baseline for it because when you're authentically self-promoting it is authentic and it's natural and and you're falling back on what your skills are what your attributes are what your traits are and that's the EQ part who am I what am I great at what do I love to do and what's my what's my place in the world what's my purpose in the world and what am I called to become so the authentic authenticity piece is a really important piece of the groundwork before you start launching into a social media campaign for example uh, and you know and for me it's it's I've learned through trial and error and this is the stuff that I share so I'm, I'm sharing real examples when I when I talk to women about my own journey the journeys that I've I've had with other women the journeys I've observed so there's a bunch of stuff but all, all based in being based in authenticity is absolutely critical the flip side of that is is the how. So what are the what are the tools and the mechanisms, the tips and the tricks and the hacks and, and you know those kinds of things. So how do you create a, a great LinkedIn profile and how do you use LinkedIn as probably one of the premier um, connecting sites across the world uh, to to promote yourself? What else can you do? How do you use networking events? And and look, networking events are, again, women have the, oh my God, not another networking event. And I wrote an article last year called I Hate Networking uh, because women often hate networking. Men do too, but yeah, let's face it, I'm I'm working with women. So how how do we address that? Well, I addressed it by starting a networking group, which 
I actually don't want to call a networking group because it, I think it will repel rather than attract. I call it a, a an ecosystem for women to thrive. And it's about putting people in a room. If you just put people in a room with wine and food and people, that's not networking. You need to put people in a room with a purpose and with a, a platform and a framework and some opportunity to connect, to create the – well, break down a barrier. So – there's a lot around networking. And what do women face? Women face, oh my God, you're a shameless self-promoter. Uh, oh my God, there she is on LinkedIn again. And I've got to tell you, I get it too. And I think, well, bugger you. I, I don't care anymore. I've got a business to build. I've got a message to get out there. I've got a mission to achieve. And I am consistently in the platforms that I choose to play around. I am consistently there providing thought leadership, providing provocation, uh, providing controversy and providing support to, to other people who have similar and dissimilar thoughts to say this is an agenda I'm prepared to to push and promote and um, and, and yeah and, and help advance women so I have to be a little bit immune to some of the criticism. I'd love to get back to your response to criticism in a moment, but I'm imagining that the network group, the the non-networking group that you're talking about is uh, is women who get it and I'd love to hear about where the name came from. Like all good ideas, it didn't start over a salad, it started over a wine. <laughs> and um, I have, I was having, uh, about this time a year ago, just, just short of a year old it is actually, I was having lunch with a great friend of mine who's a, an enormous promoter and connector of women, Kelly, and I was having a moan and a groan about the fact that I was going to networking events and A, they were expensive, B, not a single person, particularly women, weren't connecting with each other um, and see I was feeling annoyed about it. <laughs> and she said, we'll do something about it. And I said, right, I will. And I thought, what the hell am I going to do? And we talked it through and, and, you know, talked and laughed as you do. And I just said, look, Kel, I just want to hang around with women who get it. And I went, oh, women who get it. That's a great name. What am I going to do with that? I'm going to start a Facebook group for my friends and it's going to be women who get it. And within a couple of weeks, my, of course, because I started the group straight away um, in the throes of a lovely bottle of wine and um, invited my friends to the group. They invited their friends and they invited their friends. And within a couple of weeks, I had 300 people in this Facebook group and I went, what the hell's happening here? And then the women were saying, well, you should do an event. I said, yes, I should. So I did. And I thought, I'll just get a few people in a room. There'll be 20 or 25 of us. Well, 65 women turned up to the first yeah. event where we did. And I thought, right, what can I do with these events? I thought, I want to give back. So I, I did the event. The first event was to all profits went to Macaulay House, which is one of the, the – in fact, it's the only 24 by 7 uh, crisis refuge for women and their children escaping domestic violence and then I thought and I'm going to give some of my female entrepreneurs the opportunity to grab the mic literally and do a three or four minute self-promotion like get them up there in front of 60 women and say this is who I am what I do and this is what help I need because we often don't ask for help and it was a roaring success and during the night women said when's the next one I went ah in two months of hell's bells and my partner Rhonda said so you're now doing events are you I said it would appear I am so I did it the other one, then I did another one, then I did another one. Suddenly, by Christmas, I'm going, right, there's a gap. There's an unmet need uh, for women. I'm going to meet it. And I and on we go. We've now got 
more than 1,500 women on the on the Facebook site. I've had events, three events in Sydney, uh, four events in Melbourne, another one coming up. I've got this tiger by the tail and it's going places and I'm not getting too prescriptive about what the outcomes are going to be other than global domination, but you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's, I, I, but you know what, the other thing I found, I love it. I love organising the events. I love being there with a bunch of women. I love seeing the energy and feeling the energy and, and, you know, and I'm human. I love hearing the feedback. Michelle, this is great. You do, you've done a really good job. Um, so there's nothing like finding your calling. That's awesome. I love hearing that. So I'm going to move into some of the leadership questions. Can you talk a bit about what leadership means to you now that's different than in the past? Leadership now for me is around care and attention to detail and humanness and heart. When I first started out, I've always been a, a always been a heart-led leader and but I didn't I I shelved that and and packed it away and thought I had to be very very a a whole different kind of leader and to give that context I reflected on leadership and role models uh, a few months ago I was having a talk with someone else and I realized that in my first 20 years of of working and leading I had no female leaders. I had all male leaders, and so I grew up in a in uh, with with one definition and one version and one role model of leadership, and it was a middle aged white man in Australia. Now I'm not suggesting that middle aged white men aren't great leaders. I think some of them are. I, I, in fact, I'm, I'm thinking about one right now. A guy called Steve Collier, who's about to leave the uh, the National Australia Bank, probably one of the best heart led strategic leaders that I've I've come across, who I admire enormously, uh, enormously I should say. But I thought, well, okay. So my definition of leadership has shifted and changed, and I've really got in touch with the fact that leaders need followers that's you know you're not a leader unless you've got followers lead being a leader doesn't require a position on an organizational chart uh, I'm a leader now and I have zero direct reports mm-hmm. except for my cats um, except I think I report to them yeah. um, <laughs> Leadership is around yeah creating followers you create followers when people want to follow your vision and so for me leadership is you you create a vision you build a, a strategy to get there and a plan and you invoke and win the hearts and the minds and the hands of those followers to, to get to the vision. And it's my job to, as a leader, to, you know, direct traffic, remove barriers, actually sometimes put up barriers. I used to say to some of my teams that uh, think of me as a um, – as a bulldozer and a barrier and they go what do you mean I said I bulldoze through barriers and then I put barriers up to bullshit because sometimes you've got to you know your teams don't need to hear that the the crap that goes on um when when yeah the crap that goes on I'll just go full stop at that um so so I've got a really um I've got a really strong view and and sense of my own leadership what I have a concern about and in fact I was just discussing very passionately with my partner leadership last night is that we've really got to redefine leadership in Australia in fact in the world it is uh, I think we're lacking in in compassion I think we're lacking in care I think we're lacking in uh, you know treating people with dignity and respect you know people don't surrender their adulthood and their 
their need for care and their need to feel value and their need to feel like they're part of something great when they walk through it through a workplace door. In fact, they should actually have all of that sparked in them and it's not happening. And, you know, the flip side of that is it means I'll be in work for the rest of my life. But, you know, but yeah, so that's that's a very broad sort of view of leadership. That's great. So what do you think it's going to take for us to be able to increase those traits that are missing in leadership? When I think of what's happening in the US, like do, do we have to elect someone as, you know, like Trump to inspire us to really change how we lead and how we sort of create society such that you know leadership and well just you know honoring the diversity that our community is rather than just privileging a few what do you think it's really going to take to to make that shift I wonder if it's going to take another cataclysmic event so the conversation last night that I was having was in the context of the global financial system collapse in in 2008 and the fact that the, it was widely, widely known and understood that there was a bunch of alpha male leaders who took the financial system down because of their arrogance, uh, their ego and their unwillingness to accept diversity of thought. So I wonder if it's going to be another event like that that makes us, as a, as a society, examine what we really want out of leadership and examine the types of people that we're putting into positions of power. So that's the disaster side. On the positive side, it, it is about celebrating the people who embody great, human, compassionate, visionary, get-stuff-done leadership. And I want to start finding role models who are just not that typical, charismatic, very out there, extroverted snake oil salesman, quite frankly. And, and you know, those people have a place, but, the, you know, the, all of the styles of leadership have a place, but we need all styles to be celebrated. How to do that? Well, gee whiz, I think I'd be an extremely rich woman if I knew how, because I'd be, I'd be selling it. But, uh, Starting to, you know, what what can your listeners do? They can start thinking about leadership differently. If they're in a position of, of power, they can start rewarding and celebrating different styles. So that quiet person that often doesn't speak up at a meeting will often be processing information differently to the rest of the people. So we talked earlier, I'm a verbal reasoner, so I will always think out loud. But there are people who, and I find it in my workshops, I've got to be really in tune with the women who who don't want to speak up. They need to process the information, form their idea, and then they may speak up an hour and a half later about a topic from an hour and a half before. So it's being really in tune with that diversity of style and preference and intellect and and starting to celebrate that and reward it because we don't reward in corporate Australia, we don't reward the introverted, quiet, powerful leader. As a facilitator, I used to be afraid of the person who didn't say anything because I thought it was my job to make sure that they contributed. And I've come to a place where I just pretty... Uh, accepting of just all the different ways that people contribute to a group and it's always not always verbally and I think of the person who doesn't say anything as the sponge because they're really absorbing everything and I make a point to go and speak to them afterwards because they are able to see uh, and sort of encapsulate what happened in a very different way. So I'm going to move on to asking about if if there's a particular resource or book uh, that you find yourself referring 
um, to others a lot. I'm looking at your bookshelf and seeing a lot of awesome books in there. And I'm wondering, is there one that you often find yourself giving to other people or or referring to for them to read? Yeah, I do. Uh, for women, particularly women who are – I typically work with three personas with women. And it's um, – the first one is I'm an emerging leader. So I'm a, I'm a, a younger, typically woman who's who wants to move into leadership. So help me get there. Uh, the, the, the next persona is, oh, my God, they made me a leader. What the hell do I do now? Because I've been a technical expert. Now I've got to lead. What does that mean? I really wanted it. And now I've got it. Oh, my God. And the third persona is typically I've been a leader. Is this all it is? Is this all? Oh, my God, it's not what it was cracked up to be. I don't want the C-suite anymore. Who am I? So in all of those, um, and, of course, there are, you know, uh, derivations of, of all three, but the one that I refer to often is uh, Tara Moore playing big. It's uh, the, my good friend Kelly, who was the my muse and inspiration for women who get it. She put me onto Tara 18 months or two years ago. And I really liked it because it's around, again, it's practical. So I like stuff to do. I like to say, that's nice, but now what do I do? So it's a book that talks about talks about fear a lot. And it talks about your inner critic and, you know, those that voice that you have going on in your head. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. You are. So honour the voice, but do something about it. So I, I, I refer to, to playing big quite a lot. And I really, really like Dweck Mindset. That That is another game changer book for me. It's uh, being able to recognise and learn and reflect from the experience that you've had and not stay fixed. It's just so powerful. Simple, yet powerful. So they're, they're my two go-tos. And as you can see by my bookshelf, uh, there are there are lots of others. And uh, I'm a voracious reader. Um, I'm in the middle of, in fact, I'm in the middle of three books at the moment. Um, Stop Fixing Women by Catherine Fox, which I, I, I put a tweet up last Friday night because I read it. I started reading it. I took delivery last Friday, started reading it before I went to bed at about 11 o'clock last Friday night, which is very late for me. At one o'clock, I'm still reading because I'm bloody outraged because it's all about not fixing women. So I'm reading that. I'm rereading Juliet Burke's book, uh, Which Two Heads Are Better Than One, which is really, really good material to, for, for people, leaders in organisations and organisations to think about diversity in all of its beauty. And I've just bought Angela Pippos's book yesterday, Breaking the Mould. So I'm starting to read that as well. So I'll let you know what the update is on the next go-to books. That sounds great. I think I definitely need to read the first one. The next question is about what you think we need to pay most attention to to prepare for the future given the changes happening so rapidly and a lot of that is technological but there's also a lot of um, I think social change and minds and hearts being changed probably not commensurate to the technological change and I find that a little bit worrying personally but yeah what what do you see in that in that realm as far as being able to prepare for the future what we should pay attention to and how to prepare yeah it's a, a great question what's on my mind at the moment around society is the prevailing trend of uh, nostalgia and nationalism and when we look at the northern well even the southern hemisphere but the certainly the northern hemisphere the government's in power are predominantly right wing. They are traditionalists and there's a lot of backlash against technology and societal 
um, advancement, uh, and that's the nostalgia. You know, people want to go back to the good old days um, because they don't feel safe and they don't – there's a lot of people, particularly in the US, that have been disenfranchised through uh, the way technology has changed. If we think about the, you know, what do they call it, the rust belt through the middle of the US, the manufacturing base, you know, the – the rise of China um, and India and and some of those countries where you know that they've been competitive and depending on who you listen to they've taken jobs away from those traditional bases so yeah so that's what's on my mind if I think about the macro or the you know the mega trends that are happening across the globe I am an avowed left winger there's there's no doubt no one would be in any doubt if they'd read any of my material that I'm I, I'm a I call myself a socialist capitalist actually but because uh, I don't want to be a poor person but but um, I'm concerned that there's a very hard line element coming through. If France is really worrying me, you know, potential for a, a real hard liner, hard line right winger to be elected as president is very concerning. The fact that they've banned the burqa and, you know, there's a, just such a there, – there's so much exclusion going on and I, I'm, I'm very, very concerned about that. How do we prepare I would like women and men, but I would like us, I'd like people to get educated, you know, and I don't mean in the traditional sense of, you know, primary, secondary and tertiary education. Keep informed about what's going on. I, I see politicians elected based on the sound bites on the 24-hour news cycle, the, the tweets that they put out. And I'm wondering if the voting public, number one, a vote is sacred. I was always taught that by my parents. Your vote is important. Why are you voting for the candidate you're voting for? What are you expecting? How are you holding our members of parliament, our legislators, our policymakers accountable for your world? You you can you can take control, but you must know uh, what's going on in the world. So get prepared by getting getting educated, read the newspapers. Uh, then again, read some of the news. I must say the newspapers in Australia I, I have a real issue with because they're very narrow, but uh, read the news, stay informed because when you've got information, you can then make informed choices and it worries me that people aren't making informed choices. So some of the things that I think about um, are along the lines of what you're talking about with their workshop. I think some of the skills that we're going to, that are going to become prominent are very based in our humanity, very much about our our social and our emotional intelligence. And, and I, I love that, you know, the financial intelligence is, is also something that, that you bring because I think that's something a lot of us don't have. So what are some of the skills that you see that are important in line with advancing women and the ultimate goal of a, a better a better world? The authentic leader is, is really important to me and that's my, my capstone module, if you like, um, is around the authentic female leader. And that's bringing it all together. So that's, I know who I am. I know what my skills, my traits and my attributes are. I know how to lead and inspire people and organisations. And let's face it, you can be an absolutely fantastic person, a great leader. But if you're in business, any business, whether it's like mine, a single proprietor business or leading BHP, you know, the, the, the big Australian, you've got to be able to make 
the business work, which means knowing where does your revenue come from? Where are your new markets? Where are your emerging and new markets? How do you how do you build competitive advantage? What is your brand and how do you get it out there? All of the principles that apply to running a really good business are as important for women. And I, I try to build the bridge between knowing yourself, knowing how to lead others, knowing how to run a business, knowing how to then build a market and build a following, I try and meld that together for an individual woman as well as a woman in an organisation. So ultimately, authenticity, you know, it's it's the, the heart-led leader. I know my values because when I'm guided by my values, I, I, I can be courageous and call out when things are wrong. And, and being courageous is not just going, well, I'm just going to speak out. Being courageous is, for me, it's when going, right, wow, I'm actually going to make a stand on this issue and I can I have a particular example this week where I made a stand on an issue where I knew I was going to be probably disenfranchising a couple of the people in my network uh, because I was having, holding a very contrary view, but I felt so strongly that I had to speak out. And that's courage because I thought there's going to be a consequence <laughs> and I, I want people to understand their values, be able to stand by those values in the leadership decisions that they make for themselves, their people, their organisations and just get in touch with compassion and humanity because my goodness, there are a million and one stats out there but I can tell you that fully engaged workforces are 22% more profitable than not. And when I say fully engaged, not partially, um, there's all sorts of measures about engagement, but you've got a fully engaged workforce, the productivity levels, the discretionary effort, the brand advocacy is is incredible, 22% more profitable. So I don't know, I think it's a no-brainer. <laughs> That's remarkable. I'd like to just go back to the authenticity stuff for a minute. I think a lot of us, like, you know, I was thinking about what you were saying in your early leadership experiences and just this idea that we are sort of encouraged to be a particular way rather than be who we really are and the a lot of the fear I think comes from you know it's it's not okay for me to express who I really am because that's going to be judged and and criticized so maybe it's it's also about um, talking about the you know dealing with criticism and so yeah what, what are what are your thoughts around around that stuff so there's there's a couple of things there authenticity is around making yourself vulnerable and where I think we're programmed right back from the dinosaur days you know that little tiny little piece in the back of your brain that tells you to you know flight fight or freeze so we don't put ourselves out there because we are naturally programmed to prevent ourselves from being hurt and how that translates into human relationships and particularly relationships in the workplace is that I will portray the image that I think is acceptable for leadership in this organisation or in this culture. So culture, particularly in workplace culture, is the way we do things around here. And if the way we do things around here is by being strong and assertive and charismatic or dictatorial or whatever, if that's the way things are done around here, that's the way people see that they need to be successful. So they start to behave that way. And it is not authentic at all. And I've got to tell you from a, a wellness perspective, it's bloody exhausting and it makes people sick. So that's that's one part. So really understanding who you are, uh, and it links back to that, what is leadership? You know, why, how can we redefine leadership? From a criticism perspective, you know, I, I, I'm human, <laughs> like everyone else. Believe it or not, people, I am. But, um, and, and criticism stings. Putting yourself in a position where you actively seek feedback, 
which is criticism, because criticism is constructive or non-constructive, um, is a way to hear messages about yourself for you to understand how you can perform better. People can... Def- can determine for themselves what perform better means but it does mean getting in touch with that vulnerable your vulnerable self and saying can I get some feedback about what works and what doesn't work when we're together can I get some feedback about that last event I ran was it good or was it not so good and you know and and I've got to say I I do surveys after all of my events and workshops and and I would be fibber if I said sometimes I get comments I think oh man that hurt I didn't realize that and I and you know that you have all sorts of reactions but ultimately get to acceptance as quick as you can because it's constructive and it will help you adjust and evolve and be a great human so there's that part of it and I, I'm keen to ask my um, tall puppy advice question, but uh, before I do that, I want to I want to talk about footy, and I think this is going to um, hopefully delight some of our uh, Australian listeners because I don't talk about uh, footy really at all ever, <laughs> except for um, some of the historic stuff that's happened in the last year. So for our international listeners, football from a an Australian perspective is also known as Australian rules football, uh, which is different from rugby, different from uh, American AFL or CFL, Canadian, uh, what we call here gridiron. It's a very different sport. So yeah, what have you seen happen in the last year in that realm? And and tell us a bit about your involvement in um, the whole footy world. One of my favourite subjects, one of my F words, because I love F words and <laughs> footy is one of them. Um, so football in Australia is part of our culture, AFL, part of our culture. And whilst there are certainly different codes played, um, it is an iconic part of our culture. And what we've seen in the last couple of years and what we've seen this year is the emergence of a female league. So the AFLW, the AFL Women's League, commenced this year. The the way that came about was really interesting. So there's always been female football and the Victorian Women's Football League has been around for a long time and grown and grown and grown. But in the last six years, there's been explosive growth in the number of women playing football. And uh, as a result, the AFL and the the commissioner and the CEO of the AFL a year ago said, right, we're having a a female football league. That didn't come about from the top down, did it? That's been women advocating for years. I, I work with one of them so and I, I live with someone, well, my partner is uh, someone who used to play in the the, the local leagues uh, and so now that it's sort of professionalised, I, I know that it's, there's been a long history of that. So, yeah, it's, say a little bit of what, what you see there. You're right. So there've, there have been a, a bunch of women around and some very prominent ones. So Susan Alberti is is, is one woman. Uh, Lisa Caddo is another. Debbie Lee is another. Uh, there's a whole bunch of women and I, I, I be doing a disservice to the all of the the women out there who have been lobbying and activating and advocating for years and years and years to have a female league. So to give some history, women uh, of my age, we could never play organised football. So you played with the boys, you know, kick the footy around at school, in the ovals, after school and in the street, etc. In I think it was around the nineties, uh, the little the little league Auskick uh, started to have uh, young girls could could start to play. But once girls reached the age of twelve, they had to stop playing. So that from the age of twelve on was there was no pathway, there was no structured football for women, young women um, and girls to play. Leagues popped up, so unofficial leagues and competitions popped up all over Australia, and then they started to form. 
their own organisations. And as a result of all of that, uh, long story short, and with a hell of a lot of lobbying and activating, the, the AFL finally, well, they put in place, so there was the Victorian Women's Football League, the West Australian Football League, so, it, so each state had a state-based league. Uh, and then the AFL said, no, we're going to have a national female league. And it took women to keep knocking on the door, picking up the phone, sending emails, protesting, as I said, advocating, uh, activating and lobbying to make that happen. And to much fanfare, we had the we had the AFLW kick off earlier this year to well, the the measure of success and the take up was the fact that the kickoff game between Collingwood and Carlton had been scheduled at a particular ground. Uh, because they expected maybe two to two to three thousand people would come. When it became apparent that more than two or three thousand people would turn up to this game, it was shifted to the venue was shifted to Icon Park, so the Carlton home ground, which has a capacity of twenty five thousand people. On the night of the first game, that ground filled to its capacity, and people were locked out. Were you there? Unfortunately, not. And as so, so I'll, I'll tell you my story because I was there, oh, right. and um, so I, I arrived early. I met up with our mutual friend Carice uh, and her partner Angelique, and my partner was with her family who was visiting, and they were sort of coming on the tram after me. They came in just as the game started. Within five minutes, we heard the announcement the the gates were being locked because we're at capacity. So I was so glad she managed to get in, and it was just such a phenomenal feeling. Like I'm I'm not I'm not into sports really at all, but to be witness to this historic event was phenomenal. The feeling and just, you know, being around all of these girls who were like, I can play this. And, and you're hearing Carissa's story that she played Auskick until she was 12 and then she wasn't allowed to play. And my partner who, who moved to Melbourne so she could play and presented the state and played like a local league to now where there are women who are paid to play football. It's, it's a long time coming and it feels in some ways ridiculous, but at the same time, it is awesome. The, the stories that, that have come out of this this league starting have been absolutely extraordinary and lucky enough to spend some time with Angela Pippos yesterday who her documentary earlier this year, A League of Her Own, captures the story absolutely beautifully. Um, and yes, I cried when I watched it, but but even my own story. So that night I already had a pre-planned business dinner, which I was furious about. And I kept, they must have thought I had some kind of, you know, issue with my stomach because I kept nicking off to the toilet. Well, I wasn't. I was going out to the front bar to watch the, the game on the TV um, because I was so furious I wasn't there. Um, I went to another game and I was on a packed tram going out to, to Icon Park, sitting there, and there were two young women um, who were gorgeous. They stood up and let me sit down and they had their football guernseys on and I said to them, oh, you support Carlton? They went, yeah. We um, we went to school with Darcy V and she played for Darabin and and what have you. And I said, all right, so what's the story now? And they went, we went to that first game and we went straight out the next morning and signed up for our local footy club because we know now that footy's a game for us. And that same game, I was I went to the footy on my own. So I was here and I said to my partner, I'm just going to go and have a look at the footy. I have never, ever been to a football game on my own before. And I went, that's really interesting. So I've got a half-written blog about it, actually. But uh, I thought, what is happening here? And I walked in and I got I got a beer and I went and sat in my seat and I'm sitting there all on my own, feeling as pleased as punch. And, and I went, you know what? I belong here and I don't feel like I'm at someone else's game under sufferance or with permission. I feel safe. I feel included. There were people around me and, you know, 
the, the men were, that were there, you know, how I love, how are you going? Well, who are you barracking for? You know, just the conversations. And I'm sitting there having this these moments of absolute literally joy and wonder and I'm going wow this is so much more than just a bunch of women playing football this is around a this is social construct uh this is this is us changing society and attitudes and it's it's just the first bit it's extraordinarily exciting so can you talk a little bit about your work in the football world yes it there's a couple of uh, facets to my work I am on the board of Williamstown Football Club which is one of the old I think it might be the oldest club in the VFL and I've just joined that board pleasingly uh, am on the football subcommittee so I'll be involved in setting strategy and, and delivering for that organization both at an organizational level and at a playing level. So that's that's exciting. And then I also do work with sporting organisations. Uh, I've been doing some work with Carlton Football Club, uh, running their inclusion series. And, and essentially that, that we've, I've worked with them to design, deliver, MC a series of four events for their business community to talk about what does it take to create an inclusive culture? What does it take to create an inclusive organisation? And again, in the theme of practical events, we have uh, a bunch of information and interesting people and panels and things like that. But we run a workshop at each one of these events. So yesterday, uh, we did one, which how do you start building the business case? How do you start? What are the what are the business benefits? What are the outcomes you're seeking? What are the foundations and the drivers? So we take those attendees through a workshop. I'll also, I work with women in sport and I don't necessarily just mean players, uh, but I certainly think working particularly with the female football players is going to be very important work for me. They get a lot of training and skills development about you know, how to handle the ball and fitness and nutrition and things like that. But a, a sporting career is fleeting. I want to be able to work with women in sport, both playing and non-playing, because there are a huge amount of women in non-playing roles in sporting organisations, um, and help them find their voice, find their brand, find find or get in touch with their skills um, and the skills that they need to advance. So it, essentially what I do for corporate Australia, but I'm, I'm I'm doing it for a sector that largely has under-promoted, under-advanced and under-recognised women as a, as a catalyst and a great – a catalyst for change and a great opportunity to, to make those organisations thrive in advance. That's awesome. I love hearing that. Let's get into our last question, what I call tall poppy advice. What would you say to someone who is thinking about starting a business or joining a football club or starting a, a career in, in sport um, or they want to write a book or have a creative project or just want to change the world in some way and know that there's something in them that wants to come out, what advice would you have? My stock standard advice for for anything, whether it's write a book, start a business, start a project, do something is why. Start with your why. Because when times get tough and you lose inspiration or barriers emerge or you hit writer's block, whatever it may be, you've got to be able to come back to why am I doing this? What is this? So it's purpose. So for me, I my why, but you know, I have days when I think, oh my God, what am I doing? I've got no work. I've, you know, I'm looking down the barrel of a year. And I'm going, holy moly, why am I doing this? Why am I? Do- I'm doing this to advance women. I'm doing this to create a gender equal world. So finding out what your why is and really hanging on to that um, is absolutely critical. Building a plan, but don't get caught up. I mean. People said, oh, you know, did you have a good business plan when you started? I went, no, I 
didn't have one at all. I had an idea. And, you know, JFDI, just freaking do it. You've got to take a leap sometimes. Believe in yourself and take a leap. Now, and when I say take a leap, be considered about it. I'm a commercial pragmatist. So particularly for, for those people who are saying, I'm going to start a business, make sure you've got some some capital behind you. And even if it's like, how long can I go without getting paid? Really know that. These are practical things. Have three to six months worth of, I can pay the bills money up my sleeve because other than that, it's going to be a really hard slog because it is hard when you're you're building a business and running a business. They are two separate things. Um, you know, the old saying, work on the business, work in the business. When you're a sole proprietor and starting out, you have to do both and really understand the difference. Again, got to go back to the why and also have those resources at your fingertips. And the third thing is work out who your tribe is. Work out those people in your ecosystem that are going to be your constructive critics, that are going to give you great advice, but ultimately they're going to be there to go, good on you, or here's the shoulder, come and have a cry. There are a lot of tyre kickers out there. There will be a lot of people who who will want to associate themselves with you. So your, your brand is the only one you've got. Make sure that you're associating with the people who meet your values, that are going to help you with your why, uh, that can add value to you and you can add value to them because reciprocity, gratitude, generosity is a really big part of well, it's been a certainly big part of my journey as a as a as an entrepreneur. And I I certainly know what I'm constantly I'm, I'm less amazed now, but certainly very grateful is is the ecosystem of female entrepreneurs, female business owners that are just simply so generous, generous with their time, generous with their advice, just simply generous. And it's it's a joy to, to, to work with those people. So that's my advice. I just want to pick up on one thing that you said about, I, I was also advised to not do a business plan. And now I'm in my, my job, I'm actually working with people to create a business plan. So how do you balance what you plan for and what actually happens and that sort of acceptance of what emerges and how to sort of, whether it's pivot or adapt. So how do you deal with that? And let me clarify around a business plan. A business plan is often very useful if you're seeking investors, certainly tech startups. Now I'm, I'm a knowledge worker. I'm a professional services provider. So I have enormous ability to be agile and to pivot. And I have pivoted three times now since I started. And by pivot, I mean refine and get really clear on my message and my brand and what I'm all about. I think tech startups uh, where there's, you know, that there's capital required, startup capital, working capital, things like that. Your investors are going to want to see a business plan. They're going to know what's happening and and what have you. So I just need to make that distinction. In terms of, of my business plan now, my vision hasn't changed. I would say that I want to, I had an awakening three or four months ago, which is oh, that's right. I work for myself. I don't need to go and write a business case or seek permission from a committee or, you know what, don't need to ask anyone except myself. If I want to change, I'll bloody well change. So I did. And it was really interesting to decorporatize my brain and go, hey, this is what I'm in this for because I've, I now have, well, I ultimately have the power to do whatever I like. But with power comes responsibility and with responsibility comes choices and with choices come consequences. So, you know, I, I wrote something recently and it said, well, you know, I like being in control. But guess what? That means that I have choices. So if I choose to have a day where I'm fluffing around or whatever, well, guess what? I'm not, I'm, I'm actually, I won't get revenue that day. 
but that's fine if I'm making an informed choice. But don't go sooking because guess what? No, I'm the only one who's going to listen. <laughs> so there you go. Is there anything else that you want to say to our listeners, um, whether it's about being in pursuit of creating a gender equal world or just in general um, before we finish up? Any final word? Two words. Be nice. Seriously, I, I would just like people to think about kindness and compassion and how you could do one really nice thing every day, even if it's smile at someone on the tram, be nice to your barista, just say a kind word to someone. And I know that sounds really hokey and trite, but it's good for the, it gives you great endorphins, so it's good for you, good for you and your own wellness. It'll make someone else feel nice, even if they think you're a bit nuts. And it's just it's nice, you know. We hear about random acts of kindness. That there should be more of it because it's, we're losing compassion in the world, and I want to bring compassion back. I love that advice. That's great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Thanks, Michelle. My pleasure. Loved it. <laughs> There's a few things I want to draw out from this conversation. Feedback on vulnerability, and not surprisingly, financial literacy, and her tall poppy advice. Feedback is such an important and often overlooked aspect of leadership. I appreciate how she talks about it in terms of authenticity and vulnerability. She said that being authentic is about making yourself vulnerable, being real in an environment that compels us to be someone who is palatable and acceptable in the context of the organizational culture, It's exhausting. And yeah, it makes people sick. Have you felt that? It can be really subtle until something happens and you let your frustration out on something unrelated or you remove yourself from the environment, even temporarily, like a holiday, and it helps you see it in a new light. To me, this is the seat of disengagement, where people don't feel they can be themselves at work. We could do a whole episode on that, and I'm sure that probably at some point we will. Getting back to the topic, relating it to feedback, the challenge of being authentic, feeling vulnerable can make the idea of seeking feedback quite unappealing. And if we're already feeling a bit sensitive about being real, opening ourselves to criticism can be even more off-putting. Yet feedback is what helps us see ourselves through the eyes of others, to see not only our blind spots, but the impact that we have on the people around us. And this can feel quite risky as well. What occurs to me about this is that getting comfortable with being vulnerable, although it sounds like an oxymoron, well, anyone that's familiar with Brene Brown's work will know that she, you know, she says that vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they're never weakness. And that feels like an important muscle to develop, to continue to open ourselves to vulnerability, to develop ourselves further. And ultimately, to seek feedback is courageous. Yes, it feels vulnerable. It helps us grow. And growing isn't always easy. And yes, sometimes it's painful. This is something I could talk about for ages. And maybe one day we'll delve into that more as well. Another thing that Michelle said that I really appreciated was in relation to starting something, especially like a business or a project of sorts. I loved how she named the commercial pragmatist and asking the important questions like, how long can you go without being paid? Most of us just dive in with our passion fueling us and forgetting about these little details like cash flow. And the whole financial literacy thing is another overlooked area that we're starting to see the impact like women retiring into poverty. I have a lot of respect for the choice that she's made to include helping women understand finance in business from strategy and leadership perspective, but also in life to empower women to take control of our own future. 
in the not-too-distant past, it was the husband's domain. But that's not the case anymore, and it's important for us to know. It's important for everyone to know. It's stuff I avoided for ages, and if you've listened to my backstory in episode 8, you'll have an appreciation for the impact that my own relationship with money has had on my ability to run my own business. Which brings me to the final point. Working for yourself. I like Michelle's realization of one of the benefits in working for yourself is that you don't need to do a business case. There's no one else to convince or to influence. And you know, she said that she had to pretty much decorporatize her brain, and that enabled her to do things like pivot as needed. And her final words of advice about being nice, kindness, compassion, and the difference it makes. How you can do something nice each day. Something as simple as smiling, being nice to your barista. What can you do to bring this into practice? Is this something you're already doing? Have you noticed the difference it makes to you or to the people around you? If you want to find out more about Michelle, go to her website, michelleredfern.com. That's M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-R-E-D-F-E-R-N.com, where you can find out about her advancing women programs and events, get connected to women who get it, and find her social media links and all the details on her executive leadership work, consulting, and her coaching and mentoring. She really is a fantastic human being and very approachable. Plus, there's links to the show notes to her pages as well as the resources we've mentioned here. In wrapping up, a note on the listener survey. It's still open for now, and it's great to get a couple more responses. I've almost got enough to get some useful data, so keep them coming. If you've listened to two or more episodes, we want to hear from you to help inform the future of this podcast. I really want to learn what's useful and valuable and important to you. So you can find the link to the listener survey in the show notes and on the webpage, tathrastreet.com forward slash podcast, and where you can also find past and future episodes as well. And of course, on iTunes and Stitcher or your favorite podcast app. Ratings and reviews help your fellow listeners make an informed decision about listening. We've now got five reviews on iTunes. Thanks to Philippe, who says, Interested about the future? The one you want to build? Then Tall Poppy Podcast is just for you. You will learn about the future we can all build, from personal development to leadership and everything in between. Every podcast will challenge you in some ways so that you can expand your mind and participate in this adventure named tomorrow. How cool is that? Thanks for listening to Tall Poppy, where we are changing leadership through powerful conversations, sharing ideas, and where we're bringing a more caring and compassionate approach to leading at work, in our communities, and our countries.